Welcome to the Hidden Why Podcast, episode 955, my interview with Jeffrey Martin. We're discussing the fundamental sense of well-being. Enjoy. Jeffrey, welcome to the Hidden Why Podcast. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. I get a feel this is going to be a very fascinating conversation with yourself, Jeffrey. I hope so. I'm sure it will. I reckon it will. So we just started talking about choice. Um, and just, just clarify that again um, for, for myself and the audience, I suppose. What is this this idea of choice about how we are living our lives at the moment? Yeah, so perhaps. part of my life is as a psychologist, cognitive scientist, cognitive neuroscientist, all of that type of stuff. And mm. one of the things that you learn when you start studying the brain is that um, the vast majority of our behavior and our going through life is unconscious. There's uh-huh. all sorts of unconscious processes that are driving us. And in fact, it's only a small part of our brain and our cognition that really is conscious, that is sort of the free will me uh, type of person. And this was so well known. Is that known like 95% so or 97% of everything we do is unconscious? There's you know differences around that, but those are often yeah. the kind of numbers that you hear. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. And people, you know, when you see people talking about this, uh, they'll often put up a picture of an iceberg, you know, and there's like mm-hmm. this tiny little part sticking up above the water and there's this giant part that is the actual iceberg, right? Um, I like that So theory. that's exactly, uh, that's exactly the way to think about it, really. Mm. Uh, and all of those unconscious processes, of course, they do influence the conscious process. And in the neurosciences, there's a debate about whether or not uh, the conscious processes are really just sort of being dragged along as the tail after the dog. Um, there's a substantial amount of evidence that suggests that our brain decides to make uh, to move our arm, for instance, just as an example, uh, way before we consciously think that we've made the decision to move our arm. I've heard that. <laughs> like yeah. that. Way hmm. before, meaning like you know, hundreds of milliseconds, right? I mean, but in brain terms, that's way before. Um, is is there is there? Um, and we'll probably get to this. I'm probably jumping in too early, but uh, is there such yeah. thing as free will? Nobody knows. Uh, I don't think anybody knows. So well, whatever you choose to believe, you can find evidence for that um, yeah. across disciplines, whether religious or spiritual or neuroscience or uh, or whatever else. Even within the academy, there's uh, plenty of debates on that from the neuroscience standpoint. Uh, so I don't think anybody knows. And I think anybody that says they know probably is that's a bad sign. What do you think? I have no clue. No clue. Evidence goes both ways. Hasn't been decided yet. So hmm. I don't know. Hmm. Hmm. So, so, with, yep, sorry. so we're really all sort of living out this unconscious choice. This was part of the behaviorism movement inside of psychology for many, many years, which was one, which was the dominant stream of psychology in really the, uh, the early to mid, even to, to some degree to late uh, 1900s. Um, and so you have sort of this, um, you have sort of this, this view where we're kind of a black box and what behaviorism really did it's this is pavlov's dog right and so if you remember the story of pavlov's dog which virtually everybody knows you know it's a russian scientist uh, named pavlov and he has a dog physiology lab and he's studying this behaviorism stuff and the famous thing that everybody knows is you know that he rings a bell and then he gives the dogs food um and then he starts to, you know, ring the bell but not give him food, but the dogs still salivate because they've associated the bell with the food, right? Uh, and then you 
uh, keep ringing the bell, don't give them food. After a while, the dog's brain figures out, oh, hey, wait a minute, turns out that bell had nothing to do with that food. What the heck am I salivating for? Uh, and they stop salivating to the bell, right? And so there's, there's a lot more complexity to it than that, but that just goes to show you how basically programmable Mm -hmm. um, the physiology is right. The, we don't control our our saliva, right? You don't. You can't. You don't sit there right now and think to yourselves, "Okay, I'm gonna salivate." Um, and so there's all sorts of unconscious physiological processes that that are obvious are just sort of be con being conditioned in the background by yeah. stuff. But what we don't realize is the massive extent to which that's true for almost all of all aspects of ourselves. We're largely these mm. unconscious machines that have been uh, programmed like this, but it doesn't have to be that way. Right. Why not? So you we have can, a choice. Once you have an awareness of this, then mm. you can make a choice. Mm -hmm. You can have your cognition, it seems, enter in the loop, whether you believe that that cognition is causal. It certainly feels causal, right? It feels like we have free will for most people. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, that's fine. You can go with how it feels. It doesn't really matter. Um, uh, let's just assume that you have free will. Let's assume that that's an accurate feeling. And so if that's the case, then, you know, you can actively inject yourself into that process. And that's what a lot of people are doing with spirituality, with religion, with personal growth, um, with um, all of these intervening types of mm. things. And so, you know, it's you, you start to you start the process of making a choice. Yeah. And our work actually. And so that if you were to do that from a personal development standpoint, from a well-being standpoint, right, there's uh, there's a huge body of work out there that is super, super awesome. Started about 2000, really it goes back before that, but it wasn't so popular. Um, and Marty Seligman is largely given the credit. Uh, for this at the University of Pennsylvania when he took over the leadership for the presidency of the of the uh, Association that all yeah. sort of psychologists belong to the APA the American Psychological Association uh, There's a British version of this of course there's other versions of this around the world, but the APA is really sort of the mothership um, And so it has tremendous influence over what's officially accepted in psychology What isn't so to have the president say okay, you know during my reign We're not going to focus on pathology, which has been more or less what psychology is focused on up to this point We're going to focus on psychological health. We're going to focus on this notion of positive psychology hmm. Well, what comes from that is a ridiculous amount of resources when someone from that position of power does that authority You know you can suddenly it's fine to do it It doesn't hurt your career to do it and as a professor or a budding a professor or a grad student or whatever Right, um, and so an enormous amount of work since 2000 has been done on this type of stuff, and they've really nailed it. You know, you want to get happier, you want to have a meaningful, fulfilled life. Like all you've got to do is really look into the positive psychology literature because they have experimented their way to all of those answers hmm. for you know 20 years now, at this point. But there's still a gap, and so our research focuses on that gap basically. Um, and the gap can best be visualized as just a fundamental part of the human condition, but not really just a part of the human condition. It seems to kind of be a fundamental part of the animal condition. So let me tell you what I mean by that. Hmm. Uh, if you are sitting outside and you're having you know, dinner at a cafe or something and you have some bread on your table and you tick off a little bit of the, the bread and you toss it to a nearby bird, what does the bird do? The bird pecks at the food right takes a little bite of the crumb right yeah. starts to eat it and then does it you know just kind of sit back and have its eyes roll back in its head and it's just like absorbed and how good the breadcrumb is and it's just like oh my god these humans are so awesome thank you for this bread 
so nice of you. I can't wait to have the next bite. No, it doesn't, right? It, it takes a bite, and while it's chewing the bite or while it's eating the bite, whatever a bird does, it looks around for what's going to kill it, right? It looks around to make sure that in that moment it's still safe. It does what every animal does all of the time, which is constantly try to ensure its safety. And when it's convinced that it's safe, then it'll take another quick peck of a bite, and then it'll immediately start looking around again for... Uh, for to basically make sure it's safe, right? And so that is kind of the fun. Making sure it's safe, or making sure the food's wild. safe from other other birds taking Pardon? it. Making sure it's safe, or making sure the food's safe. I get it's all related. A little bit both, but mostly that it's safe, and then down from there, you know, that the hmm. food is safe. And you know, it's funny. I I use this story a lot, and I was I was telling it to a friend, uh, and the friend then noticed that night that the bird that is safe in his cage at home does the exact same thing, right? That bird has no threats. It has lived a long, very safe life, dutifully fed by him and his wife and kids, right? And yet it exhibits this same behavior and it exhibits it because it's so deeply wired down in there. And it, mm. we have the same thing. We're just animals. We don't like to think about that. We don't go, oh, we're humans. We're above it all. But we have the same wiring. It's developed evolutionarily the same way. We have that same primacy of survival instinct. The difference yeah. is, you know, for most of the people listening to this podcast, you're living in a very different kind of life, right? Like, are you, wherever you're sitting, I'm sitting in a studio in Los Altos, California today, Silicon Valley, basically, in America. Um, you know, I'm not worried. I don't know about you, where you're sitting in your studio. Um, Pretty safe here. Hmm. Yeah, it's like I'm not worried about a, a tiger coming in here and ripping my arm off, right? Or some gunman bursting into the studio, um, or more or less anything, right? I mean, I is the door even locked? Who knows? Who cares, right? It's hmm. it's safe here, um, and so. What happens to us as humans is we still have that system. That system does not shut off by default, right? And so we still have a system inside us that is producing this feeling that in this moment something probably isn't right or something might not be right. I call it a fundamental sense of discontentment. Now, for some people that are really, really happy, that fundamental sense of discontentment can be really far pushed in the background. Hmm. And for other people that aren't so happy, they can have, you know, a crazy existential crisis that makes them put a gun to their head. Right. Uh, and everywhere in between. But the fundamental problem of the human condition is this safety mechanism that is running in us and all animals really by default. And um, as a consequence of that, it's mapped all sorts of stuff onto it. It doesn't stop working. Right. And so this is why if you get fired from your job, it feels like your boss fired a gun at you you know, on the way out the door, right? Or if your spouse comes home and says, I'm leaving you and I'm taking everything and the kids, it feels like they've just, you know, taken a sword and tried to lop your head off with it or something, right? It's <laughs> it's all of these things that are in our modern environment have kind of been shanghaied and associated with this sense of safety and survival. Um, and that's, of course, ridiculous. There's a million jobs out there, right? And even if the boss was so powerful they could ban you from your career, so what? There's a million other careers. There's, you know... How there's like four billion people of the opposite sex in the world, right? Pretty sure that wasn't the only one uh, for you. Right? I mean, there's really so little that could happen to us that actually is related to true survival, and yet all of these other things are mapped to it. And so one of the things about the positive psychology movement is that 
it can make you happier and it can push that fundamental discontentment into the background more and more and more, but it can never really get rid of it. Hmm. And so you wind up with, um, you wind up, you know, finding yourself doing a lot of things, uh, lots of times unconsciously, you don't even realize that this is what you're doing to try to quash that you, you know, it's like, well, maybe the next car is what I need, or maybe I need a different spouse, or maybe I need this educational degree and to embark on this new career, or maybe I just need more time to myself, or maybe I need this, or maybe I need that. And we're, we're constantly looking for all of these things outside of us. And incidentally, that goes back to childhood. And simply because when this neurological stuff was being baked in in the first place we were so dependent upon other people and we were so dependent upon our for our survival on all of the stuff that was outside of ourselves that we just grow up through our life cycle looking to the stuff outside of us as oh this must be the thing that solves this core survival thing i just need more of this or more of that and of course our beliefs change over time and our goals change to adapt to this but it's all at its heart this survival impulse and so mm. what has been revolutionary about our work is that that it turns out you don't actually have to live that way there is a whole other experience of life that you can have as a person yeah and so that's what that's what we work on we basically study those people and we help people get there now basically because we have to yep. measure them before and after you know science it's not enough to measure somebody after they've transitioned to something right you've got to be able to see who they were before during and after and yep. so we've had to develop ways to do that so uh, I figure that's probably what we'll talk about, huh? <laughs> it's a, a nice uh, introduction into it. Um, we, I mean, this this whole need for survival, um, how does it relate to a fear of death? Uh, are they both the same thing, I wonder? Because I've been reading a lot of Stoicism and they talk a lot about death and how we we often don't think about death and it's because we fear it and perhaps everything that we do is to try and avoid that and survive. Do you sort of agree with that? Oh, very much death is tied up with that. Fear of death mm. is tied up with it. Absolutely. And in fact, the, um, after you make the transition and you go from sort of a fundamental sense of dis, uh, discontentment to a fundamental sense of okayness, if you will, and we can talk about that, mm. um, What one of the things that disappears is the fear of death. Mm. So it's clearly in there. You know, is it becoming engaged with the fear of death and understanding that that allows you to have nope. a greater... Yeah, you don't have to do anything like that. No. Um, it doesn't, you know, oftentimes you don't even notice it until it's gone and maybe not even until somebody mentions it after it's gone. Hmm. Okay. So with, with this, uh, the nature that we live in, like yourself and me, myself here, there's nothing that I really should have to fear, nothing I can think of anyway that I fear, but I, I'm guessing that unconsciously there's a lot of things that are driving me for this this need to survive, even though it seems like I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good to survive in, in my current condition. And the world that I live in. So now I'm starting to search for things that I then try to associate with that survival instinct. Yeah, exactly. And um, what uh, what uh, what people eventually arrive at are things that help them transcend that self complex that has been wiring itself into their brain since two and a half or three. Um, and then um, this underlying piece of fundamental discontentment changes along with it. And of course, there's all kinds of ways people do that. Um, you know, I've got friends who study and write a lot about flow, uh, like Jamie Wheel and Stephen Kotler, as an example of great books on flow. Um, and you know, one of the thing, one of the reasons people you know jump off of bridges and 
uh, do all kinds of crazy stuff trying to get into flow is because um, there's something about flow that sort of suppresses temporarily um, that sense of that type of self, that sense of self, that, that complex that's been being constructed um, since you were very young. And when that goes away, there is such an immense sense of relief and freedom and well-being um, that, you know, people do I, what some of the things seem pretty insane to me in order to try to reach that, even just for a temporary moment in their life, right? You see the same thing with psychedelics and um, all sorts of other stuff. You also see it in, in a more persistent change, often on the other side of near-death experiences. Obviously, people aren't actively pursuing those. Um, but one of the things that happens on the other side of near-death experiences is this type of transformation very often. Mm-hmm. Um slides in and people you know wake up from that and they no longer have the fundamental discontentment now they have the fundamental sense that everything is okay and it's been a and they talk and you've seen how these people talk about their lives and the level of transformation hmm. uh, that takes place in their life as a result of it that's the kind of that's the level of transformation that we're really talking about here right so this fundamental sense of discontentment is very much associated with this self-identity that we create from the ages of two or three. Yeah, is it kind of globs onto it and just generally makes it worse. You yeah, know? and it's it, it's what when that sense of self comes in, what it's what it's really doing is it's a problem solver initially, right? I mean, it's really just trying to to problem solve for us, and and over time, it has been with us for so long, literally ever since we can remember, because it comes online with episodic memory about the same time, which means life history memory. Um, hmm. because it, it you know, it's, it's literally been there for as long as we can remember. And oftentimes what people is, what people believe quite falsely is, oh, that's me. That's who I am. Like, I hmm. don't exist apart from this thing. And then you have people that, you know, will jump off a bridge and get into a flow state where it's suppressed. And it's a huge revelation to them. Like, holy cow, how can that thing go away? I thought that was me. Um, and, how know, does it become, how does it go away when you sort of jump out of a plane or something? Is it just because that experience is so intense that you forget and you, you just evade the self? Question. And surprisingly, there hasn't been a lot of neuroscience work done on that yet. That's really just happening um, in recent years. And so there aren't good answers to that yet. Hmm. I was just talking to uh, Stephen uh, Kotler the other day, actually. Yeah, which um, book he wrote? Other... I read about it. Was it called Flow? It was one of those books, wasn't it? Uh, so Flow is written by uh, M- M- the, one of the first books, and that was by Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi. Um, okay. But uh, Stephen has written a, a ton of other basically New York Times bestselling books largely around uh, this type of stuff. Um, and, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting because he really keeps his pulse on it, you know. Mm. Um, so we, we have a conference in the Bay Area here that we call the uh, Transformative Technology Conference. It's basically the intersection of technology and well-being. Uh, we started it, I don't remember how long ago. I think it's this, It's maybe it's the sixth conference year, and the movement is probably eight or nine years old. Um, and it's in, you know, it's a movement that's grown to, oh, geez, um, probably 70 countries and 400-plus cities and stuff like that. So it's sort of become this huge thing. And so anyway, we had Stephen speaking at the thing, and so I was chatting with him backstage. And I always like to get an update because I don't get to see him that much. We're both super busy. Um, and I was like, Hey, you know, what happened this year <laughs> or what happened in the last six months or whatever in the floor? How's this all going? You know? And, um, the, you know, th- these basic things like this, they're not re-answered. 
yet. Um, mm. But the good news is that for the first time, really, good scientists are starting to work on them, and they are starting to tease some early answers out. And so I think within the next two, three years, that'll be probably a much more answerable question than right now. Yeah, it has to do with, it with the state of flow, doesn't it? Championship athletes, and mm. you know they get into the same flow states, and so there's a lot of interest and plenty of money that goes that can go into researching this. So, with your research and and that on well-being, um, is it related to then helping people escape this sense of self? I therefore escaping this level of discontent. It is, yeah. And so, what happened was about. Uh, Oh, about 15 years ago or so now, probably. Um, I was uh, I had had a great, successful run uh, in life. Um, lots of media um, and technology, and you know, building companies and and things like that. Hmm. Um, and despite all of that, I I was I was what not were you doing? Um, oh, just you name it. Uh, tech I mean, I tech stuff. In, yeah, I started working in television, for instance, when I was 13. Um, I mean, I just had a long run. You kind of, you name it, I've done it. Yeah. Um, and so I more or less had it all, you know, really. Um, and yet I still noticed that there were people that seemed happier than me. I, I wouldn't say that I was like, you know, cripplingly miserable or something. Hmm. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I'm glad to see that the research does is finally starting to show correlations between money and happiness. Cause I do think there's a correlation between money and happiness, frankly. Um, and so I wasn't like some totally miserable person or whatever, but I, but I was a high performer. Right. And, um, and if there was another level of something, I wanted it. Right. And so that included happiness and well-being and noticing that there were people that seemed happier than I was or seemed to have more well-being than I was. Well, that didn't seem fair. I mean, here I was, I worked so hard. I achieved well, is so happiness much. and well-being correlated? <clears throat> How would you define those? Uh, happiness and well-being, the same thing? Uh, you know, I use both words because in the public sphere, they're largely interchangeable. They have very specific meanings in the academic world. Hmm. Um, but for the public, like people just tend to prefer one or the other and use one or the other. So I just use them both to, so that people feel like I'm talking about what they're, what they think I'm talking about, you know? Hmm. Um, and so, uh, I actually, um, left all of that. I, you know, I tried everything first. Um, and it didn't seem like any of it really was, was making a dent. And so, um, I, you know, I'd been trying to optimize well, my well-being for 30 years or more by that point, right? I mean, I'd worked on it a lot because um, what, you know, why not be as happy as you can be in life, right? Yeah. Um, and so but there was still that, there was still clearly a missing piece and it didn't seem like anybody could get me there. And so I basically quit everything and I went back to school to learn psychology and neuroscience. At that point, I had master's degrees and things like technology and business and stuff like that, um, management, things like that. And, uh, and, you know, really set out to find, okay, who the hell are these people? And how can, you know, what makes them different? And how can I become one of them? Hmm. Uh, how can I max out this area of my life? Like I try to max out every area of my life, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's where this all started. It all started really on a very selfish quest. Most <laughs> oh, things do, for don't my, they? For my own level of happiness, where things so often start, right? Hmm. Um, and so I did exactly that. I went back to school, got the training that I needed to do the research. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I had more than enough uh, resources to conduct the research without needing to be subject to other people's desires. And so I was able to set up a very pure, very clean research project, which is very rare for academics to be able to do. Ordinarily, they're at the whim of what grant agencies want, and they have to kind of shoehorn their 
desires yeah. in. And they, you know, I remember my very first, uh, they had this washout class at Harvard on research. And I remember my very first day, the professor walks in and he basically says, if you're here because you have some fantasy that as a scientist, you're going to be able to work on what you're interested in. Let me dispel that right now. That's not going to happen until maybe the end of your career. <laughs> if you've had an amazing career. And I was like, wow, you know, that's a wake up call. But I knew I didn't apply to me because I didn't need I didn't need to be have the money sort of come to me inside the system or whatever. Right. And yes, so I was right. able to set up a really, um, you know, an ideal research project that got at exactly the questions that I was after, which involved going out, finding the people who were the happiest people out there um, and trying how to do figure you, out. How do you measure happiness? Like, how do you f go out there and find the happiest people? Well, that's a great question. There's a lot of great measures for happiness. You know, we use these all the time in our research. Um, and so um, happiness is one of those things that's been looked at from so many, and well-being in general, has been looked at from so many different dimensions. Um, but there are, there are really great ways uh, to measure it, even really great ways to measure it with, you know, fMRI scans and uh, stuff like that. Not even just, you know, hey, how happy are you? Or pencil mm. and paper tests or measures or, uh, or whatever else. Um, and so measuring it is, is, you know, fortunately I came along at a time where a lot of that had already been um, pretty well worked out. Well, definitely worked out well enough uh, for me. And what I, what I noticed was that, uh, it, it's kind of weird, but I wound up with the population of people that sort of rose to the top being um, people that were, you might think of, and I think everybody probably thinks of as sort of spiritual and religious people who were talking about things like enlightenment or non-duality or persistent mystical experience or the peace that passeth understanding or God consciousness or unity consciousness or whatever else. Uh, but they were, they were clearly representing a level of happiness hmm. and well-being that was beyond anybody else. And I, I years later realized that it's because of that shift from fundamental discontentment to a fundamental sense that everything is okay. Uh, that's what lies at the heart of all of those experiences. Hmm. And so, you know, it took a long time to get to that, to get to the understanding of that and, uh, and whatever else. But it turns out that, you know, right out of, you know, within a very short period of time out of the gate, I was able to sort of identify this group that actually had this missing piece. These people were all around the world. I think there's a lot more of them than people think there are. And there's plenty of atheists and agnostics. It's To me, it's just a rewiring in the brain. It's had a lot of mythology wrapped around it, a lot of dogma and beliefs and whatever added to it over the years as people tried to hack their way to it or understand it in the context of their own culture, uh, you know, however many years ago and all of that. Um, but what sits at the kernel of all of this is sort of a rewiring that can happen in the brain between different main networks. Um, and the outcome of that is really sort of getting rid of the old wiring that most of us don't need anymore. Maybe if we're in a tribe in the Brazilian jungle or something, you still need that piece that keeps you on guard for your safety all the time. But I don't need it in Palo Alto. You don't need it wherever you are. Um, <laughs> And most people, you know, just frankly don't need it. I mean, if somebody did break in here with a gun, I am not less functional. I'm not like, oh, a gun, that's so great. Oh, everything is so perfect and blissful, right? I mean, it's not like that. Um, you know, you're you can never escape the, 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 the main instinct of escaping that, yes. Okay. Yeah, I would argue that I would be more functional in a situation like that than, you know, the average person, certainly not than like, you know, some elite commando from the military or something. Um, but, you know, for, in terms of average people, because 
I don't have, I wouldn't have all of the fear, stories, doubts, all of those things arising in me that ordinary people uh, would have arising in them that prevent them from taking optimum action in that situation. And so there's a lot of benefits that come with this aside from just a shift hmm. um, away from that sense of discontentment and towards a sense that everything is okay. Uh, so we've been studying this basically for, you know, like I said, about 15 years now all in. Um, and it's thousands of people all around the world. It's a huge project. An enormous amount of resources uh, have gone into it. And initially, the, the beginning part of the, the project, uh, we were able to basically catalog the, type, catalog the types of this, what it looks like, phenomenology from your own experience. Um, and um, then in the second phase of it, um, we began to experiment with, uh, once we had an understanding of really sort of what this looks like, um, then we started to transition to uh, work with partners on fMRI because I'm not an fMRI guy. I'm more of an EEG guy. Also looking at it with EEG. These are method, me you know, brain measurement methods, scientific brain measurement methods, physiological measurements, um, and figure out sort of what's going on in the brain. Um, and then um, from there, figuring out how to affect those regions in the brain. Initially with neurofeedback and things like um, EEG and uh, fMRI, which can also do uh, feedback. A lot of people don't know you can do neurofeedback with that. It's not just something that can read your brain. Um, and then, uh, you know, later with other methods. So, you know, we have protocols that take four months. We have protocols that take six weeks that help a majority of people transition to this. We're doing brain stimulation, direct brain stimulation in the lab. Uh, around this that's been halted because of the COVID stuff um, but yeah. it's what we've been working on for the previous year or so year or two prior to that where we're using um, ultrasound focused transcranial ultrasound we had one of the first setups that could target anywhere in the brain with that very precisely yeah. um, and so um, you know we it, we basically set our sights about um, figuring out okay what is this and it turns out there are different types of it so okay what are the different types of it and then, okay, what's actually happening in the physiology? Okay, can we impact the physiology uh, in different ways in order to get a pre and post measurement of people psychologically? Um, and then um, a follow-on project from that, once we were able to basically transition a majority of people that uh, participated in the research to it, uh, we began a study of, you know, who are they now longitudinally, developmentally? They're very different. It's a very different way of experiencing the world than sort of normal human consciousness, right? And it has its own developmental cycles associated with it. And that I know of, nobody really mapped that out before. Hmm. And so we began a process of really sort of mapping that out to help people optimally integrate it, optimally, you know, have it be um, integrated in with the modern life, with, with modern life and experience. Because so often, you know, these people would build monasteries, right? They would go to the cave. There's a strong desire that comes along with this to just sort of self-isolate and deepen into peace and stuff like that. But that's not practical in today's environment. No. People have to have jobs. They're raising kids. Um, and so we've spent a bunch of time uh, figuring out, okay, how do you make this practical uh, day to day so that you can experience life from this extraordinary way? So, so, you, so your research about, I mean, the tech gets involved in, in measuring that, the post and, and the, the pre and post sort of um, makeup of a person. Uh, and then you, you introduce some practices to them to help them improve that, that level of discontentment. Yeah, to some degree that... early on. Now we mostly, we have these things so well described that we can give you a list of things and say, you know, 
which one of these relate to you or don't relate to you. Or even yeah. give you a paragraph and say, these are the different types. Do any one of these sound familiar? Yeah. Um, and they're sufficiently differentiating. And so, you know, that, of course, helps to drive down costs. You don't have to stick everybody into a high-density EV right. system or something. Okay. Um, and it makes it much more accessible you know, all around the world. So we put, uh, we put a lot of that early research into a book that came out in 2019. It was about 10 years in the making um, called The Finders. So more or less anywhere in the world you are, you can get that book. The Finders, yeah. So what's a finder? Well, I I think that's a great way of expressing um, what this really is at its heart. And so um, for years, because initially I was embedded in some of the spiritual communities, um, because, you know, the people that had transitioned to this were sort of those sort of spiritual and religious authorities or renunciates in some cases or whatever. Um, and so, you know, when you're around a bunch of those people, the people that are around them um, are often referred to as spiritual seekers, right? And it got me thinking about um, the fact that really all humans are seekers. All humans are really seeking this. They're really looking for this. They don't know where to find it. Uh, in the mid-90s, I was involved with really the first major advertising uh, conglomerate. I ran it sort of a division that sat at the middle of the modern advertising world, for lack of a better way of saying it. And, um, and so, you know, everything that was done in advertising, everything that's successful in advertising is successful because of that fundamental sense of discontentment in people. <laughs> it's really kind of that simple, right? I mean, all, we, all that advertisers are is experts at poking that fundamental sense of discontentment and then associating a new Chevrolet Solution. truck Hmm. or, you know, whatever with, uh, or restaurant or whatever it is, right? With that, yeah, as the solution. Yeah. Um, and so that experience from the mid nineties really made me realize, oh, wow, you know, this, like, it's not just these people that are around these uh, religious figures and stuff that are seekers. Everybody's a seeker and we don't really know it. Um, and so then imagine if you're no longer a seeker, why aren't you a seeker anymore? Well, you're, a, you aren't a seeker because you found the answer that allows you to actually stop seeking. You know, right. You've bought your okay. limit of Teslas or something. And, you know, by the third Tesla, you realize that hasn't done it and you've gone off and you've searched in other places. And maybe you're one of the half a percent of people in the world or something that make it to becoming a finder. And so I think a, a finder is a, is a really great, meaningful phrase for what happens to this percentage of the population. They are the most fortunate percentage of the population because they have really found the thing that everyone else is looking for. Gotcha. I like it. I'll have to get a copy of the book. The, um, I mean, that's, that's, I guess, I guess the goal for everyone, isn't it? But you're saying that the, um, that level of spirituality in our life is, is what's going to help us, um, be okay with everything. It doesn't have to be a particular religion or following or philosophy necessarily. Yeah, I don't think it has to have anything to do with spirituality. There's mm -hmm. none of nothing in our scientific protocols that is in any way other anything other than secular. Uh, and so, you know, we we have a four month protocol that was our first really successful protocol, um, and it transitioned like seventy percent of people roughly um, that used it to um, to become finders basically, or to what we call this for the public, we call this fundamental well-being, transitioning to fundamental well-being for in the academic space, we call it persistent non-symbolic experience or ongoing non-symbolic experience or things right. like that. 
Um, and so for fundamental, from a fundamental well-being standpoint, um, there's nothing in that four-month protocol that, um, that is anything other than secular. Um, hmm. And so the so you know to uh, to me this is like a rewiring that occurs in the brain. If this rewiring happened, you know, two centuries ago or five centuries ago or whatever, and you started talking about it, uh, people might have built a religion around you. Or if you were in a religion, you might have been a venerated person in a religion. You still would be, incidentally, today if you decided to go down that track. Um, but that's that's just sort of and we owe just to be clear we owe those folks a tremendous debt of gratitude because i think it's really religion and spirituality and stuff and those movements that kept the the awareness that this even existed and was a thing right. um alive through the rise and fall of empires and people being wiped out and stuff over time you know it's been the cultural carrier uh but just in the same way that if you get a fever today you know, you probably wouldn't go and, you know, look to try to find a leech to stick it on your skin, right? Or grab a knife and start cutting yeah. yourself because, you know, bleeding is what takes down the fever, right? Hundreds of years ago, you would have grabbed a leech, right? Because that's what takes, quote unquote, takes down a fever. Of course, it doesn't. It bleeds people to death or whatever. Um, today, you would take an aspirin, right? Or you would whatever, take an ice bath or whatever you would do, right? Yeah. Um, and it's because science has sort of dispelled the myths around what a fever is and how to properly deal with a fever and whatever else. And that's very much what we've done around these extraordinary levels of well-being, these very different ways of experiencing a human life. It's almost like there are two modes of experiencing a human life. Mode one, which is still grounded in sort of the old school animal neurology, uh, and then mode two that transcends it. And this seems evolutionary to me, right? Like, why would it not have transcended it um, in cultures that are safe? I live in a safe culture. It's fine for me to have this. Uh, I'm not in the Brazilian rainforest trying to survive day to day. Um, and so, um, you know, this this makes perfect sense to me. Um, would you relate a, mode one and mode two to living, living unconsciously and, and mode two more consciously? Is that sort of how it could be described? Yeah, it's interesting, you know, I don't, it could, we could call it consciously, I don't know, it's all conscious, I mean, I don't think there's more or less consciousness, frankly, in mm. either one of them, um, okay. you're, I don't think that there's, uh, there are some, there's some research, and there are some people that really are into the consciousness thing that have developed some fancy mathematics that I'm not sure, too sure what I believe about, uh, with, with, with uh, EEG, that tries to show that this makes you more conscious in some way or whatever. Um, but to me, the evidence for that is, is, is pretty scant. I think it's, it's just, it's using the same, you know, machinery that your brain has always had. It's just rewired it a little bit. And when you rewire it, you get this instead of the other thing. So this, this, it's, it's a four weeks program that you, you have that helps people transition. Um, yeah, so earlier, it's not, we have a six-week program that is our, we have a four-month program that uh -huh. we used for years to collect most of our data. Um, and then we have, um, this year, when COVID hit, I was in Iowa at a university there um, extending the brainwave, uh, extending the brain stimulation study with uh, transcranial focused ultrasound um, to, to there, basically. And, yep. you know, the virus hits and everything shuts down. Uh, and it just so happened that I was born in Peoria, Illinois. Uh, I really kind of grew up all over the world, but um, there's still, you know, my mom is in Peoria now again, and uh, and there's a house there. There's houses there, you know. Uh, and so 
Uh, I went and I stayed at a house. I just drove two and a half hours, stayed at a house uh, along the river. And um, it was beautiful, you know, try, well, as we were all trying to figure out what the heck was going on and whether we were going to live through the apocalypse of COVID or whatever back then, right? Um, and so uh, after a couple of days, I mean, it's just sort of like, okay, well, this is going to be the new normal for a while. What should we do? And so what I decided to do was do an experiment that we'd wanted to do for a very long time. And that is with the four-month experiment, um, roughly the first oh, 10 or so weeks, probably the first eight or so weeks of that experiment, um, had all of the stuff contained in it. Now, it was spread out a little bit more, so it would have, it would have been longer than that. It would have been like, uh, it would have been about the first 10 weeks of that four months. Um, but that, in that period of time, uh, of the 70, roughly 70% of people that transitioned, about 60% of the people had transitioned by that point. And so I'd always kind of wanted to go back and create a shorter protocol using just that stuff. But, you know, it's like it's working. You know, it's not broken. It's getting us the data we need. We've got all kinds of other stuff to do research-wise and whatnot. And so it was just one of those things we were probably never going to get around to. Uh, so then COVID hits, and we can't do anything <laughs> we were currently working on because it all requires being physically present with people and putting EEG caps on their head and shooting them with, you know, uh, transcurrent ultrasound and stuff, right? And so um, I thought, you know, this is a good time. What the heck? Let's do an experiment. And so I created a shorter version of the protocol uh, at the house there in Illinois and just sent out an email um, and got an amazing response. This year, over 1,500 people have used that um, have used that protocol. Um, and that protocol wound up having about a 65% uh, success rate. Hmm. Um, and so that's pretty close. You know, that was higher than I thought it was going to be. I didn't think it was going to be that high. I thought it was probably going to be somewhere between 50 and 60 percent. Um, and so then we started uh, asking ourselves, okay, well, how could, you know, the, six weeks is great, right? But if you tell somebody this is going to take three hours a day for four months, there's not that many people who can use the protocol, right? Yeah. If you tell somebody this is going to take an hour and a half a day for six weeks, people are like, well, I'll try it, right? A bit more manageable. Um, hmm. And so, uh, you know, we had about 1,500 people use the other protocol in seven years, right? <laughs> we had 1,500 people use this new protocol in one, less than one year. Um, and so that tells you right there what people think uh, hmm. in terms of time commitment and whatnot, right? And so, um, and so that wound up working really well. And then we started asking ourselves, well, what if we stick the rest of the four-month protocol onto the end of the six-week protocol, modify it a little bit, you know, use modify it in the sense that like we've learned a lot over the seven years of running that we've always left it the same because it works great right but what if we were to change it based on best practices and what we've learned just like we did with the first part of it um and so we wound up creating a second 45 day um program for the people that didn't transition in the first 45 day program and that's been transitioning about another 10 or 15 percent of the overall group of people okay and so now we actually have a shorter less time consuming protocol between these two that is a better transition rate than our original four-month hmm. transition rate. And then we thought to ourselves, well, okay, well, you know, we're still sitting at home. What more could we do for those people? At this point, it's getting to be a relatively small number of people, right, that haven't transitioned. What can we do for them? Um, and we started to experiment with um, actually therapy, psychotherapy, basically. I mean, we call it coaching. Um, but really, it's from a psychotherapist, uh, a longstanding member of our team named uh, Sanjay Manchanda, who's also works with us on the brain stimulation stuff and uh, and whatnot, and um, just a, a, an amazing an amazing researcher. 
Hmm. Um, and so um, we started putting people into sessions with him, and he started to discover that the people who hadn't transitioned had one of two things that seemed to be the case with them. Either they had a belief system about fundamental well-being, maybe like some Buddhist belief that you had to be sitting in a certain posture and there had to be some blue light that came from the back of your head, whatever, right? Uh, And because that belief didn't happen, they believed that they hadn't transitioned, couldn't transition, or whatever else. And so those beliefs around it that were limiting people, and that's really true. We have found that the whole way. Like the more beliefs you have about this, the less likely you are to reach it. It's crazy. This is, you know, our minds all think that that the more we can learn about something, we can build this totally accurate model of it, right? And then once we reach that magical moment where we finally understand the last piece with our mind, we can step into it and it'll be our new reality. Well, that's kind of true if you're learning how to program or <laughs> learning how to fix a car or whatever else. But that is turns out to be the exact opposite thing that's true. Uh, for transitioning to fundamental well-being. And so that was, you know, he was able to remove those people's barriers in between one and three sessions. And the other people had a lot of childhood trauma. Hmm. And there was some aspect of actual trauma that was preventing their transition. Again, took him on average one to three sessions uh, to resolve that. Uh, And then we were seeing those people transition. So we think that this year has been really a watershed year in the sense of, you know, access to this thing. Because there's now these sort of much less time-consuming protocols that can be made available to people and they work for more people than we've ever gotten stuff to work for in the past and you know anybody that knows anything about this space knows that like the numbers that I'm throwing out probably sound impossible to them right like if somebody is a spiritual seeker out there that's gone to like a million retreats and watched a bunch of videos and read a bunch of books and done who knows what else meditated for endless hours and uh, whatever else they've probably absorbed a lot of belief about this being hard Hmm. or this being difficult to reach or whatever else but we didn't have any of that right we just approached this using the scientific method and it wound up being not very hard to reach at all um, using the modern tools of science and so Hmm. um, so we think it's it's you know it's kind of a it's this year's been kind of a neat thing uh, COVID notwithstanding from, from our research perspective, because we've been able to get sort of to this new, uh, much more easy to use protocol for people. An opportunity in the adversity. Can you share with us one thing, um, part of the protocol, perhaps that people could, um, even put into practice maybe, um, to help them with this, this move towards fundamental wellbeing? Definitely. You know, the, the main learning that I always try to tell people about is, um, and first of all, there's, a there's something that we just put up. It's a, it's like a free info thing. Um, we done this. We did this a long time ago for finders mm. because we really felt like the first things that we produced had to be for finders. You know, these are people who had take time, taken time out of their life for years. They had welcomed me into their living rooms all around the world, sat with us for endless hours, let us poke and prod them, measure them, you know, pepper them with questions, all of that, right? And so I really felt a strong desire to initially serve that population. So most of our early stuff, like the finders book is for finders. It's not really for seekers. We learned that seekers were going to read it. And so we added a few chapters at the beginning to contextualize it for seekers or whatever. But basically that book is for finders. And a lot of the stuff that we've done for years has been for finders. Uh, But we just started to, we've kind of done with, with, you know, we've rounded out the finder thing at this point. And so uh, now we just released something for seekers that they can, where they can get all, all of this information um, that I'm going to share for just a couple of minutes here, but in, in better detail. Uh, yeah. And that's at a website called 11myths.com. 
Um, so just the number 11, not spelled out, the number 11 myths.com. And it's just a, like a free, uh, free mini course that we put together, similar to the free. We have a free mini course for finders that we made available years ago. Uh, that's at explorerscourse.com because we like to say that finders go from seekers to finders and from finders to explorers. They don't sit on they don't have to sit on their porch for the rest of their life. You know they can explore mm. life from this new extraordinary way of being in the world. Gotcha. Um, and so uh, and so what I tell seekers is, um, you know, it's it's first of all it's really possible for you to get there. Like I you know I'm sure that there are people with brain abnormalities or something that can't get there, um, but it's definitely possible. To get there and it's and you should not think that this is something that's going to take you years to do um, we saw right from the beginning of our research even in the very early sort of descriptive visiting research subjects days that you know there were people who had clearly transitioned in a matter of moments days a week whatever uh, and what those people seemed to have in common uh, we came to understand later was that they had really just found the method that worked for them. And so that's the battle. The battle is to find the method that works for you. Mm. And what what's and if you do an hour of meditation a day or an hour of what a prayer, centering prayer, if that's the thing for you, or whatever the practice is, right? I don't care what the practice is. If you do an hour of the practice a day um, for a week, for seven straight days, and you're not seeing an impact from it. And by impact, I don't mean like the skies have opened up in meditation or your mind has gotten super quiet in meditation. I don't even necessarily care what happens in meditation. I don't care if God speaks to you in prayer, doesn't speak to you in prayer. Those things don't matter much to me. Um, you should start to see an impact in your outer life. You should start to see less reactivity. You should start to see uh, things like that. that. That can tell you whether or not you're in sync. Um, with a method or not. Now, if you do have great experiences in, during the practice, whatever it is, fine. Hmm. Uh, that's super because yep. one of the things that we use this practice, these practices for is we use these practices to get people a glimpse, right? And then once you have a glimpse of it, the, the name of the game is sinking into that glimpse. You've got to make that glimpse uh, you, and let, let me put it to you in brain, uh, in sort of a brain way, right? So your whole life, your brain networks have been developing along the lines that you've directed. You've directed it mostly with attention, right? I'm going to put some attention in learning how to program. I'm going to put some attention in learning how to drive a car. I'm going to put some attention in learning how to not be a jerk to my sister or brother or whatever, right? It's yeah. all an attentional driven system. Basically, what you put your attention on in the brain, that's what it goes, seeks out, learns, gets better at. Uh, and all of that, provided that you've got, you know, enough information to feed it that it can improve. Um, and so uh, it's our brain are, is our brains are really an attention driven system. We communicate with our brains. We get our brains to do more of what we want by by putting our attention on something. And the networks that are formed in the programming, if you want to think of it that way, at a more simple level that's formed in our brains, um, that programming is a, is cemented in from the attentional choices that we've made or that culture has pointed us to and you know it's a big mix of stuff um over the course of our life uh, so the the main thing that you need to do to change the brain is start putting your attention on different stuff right mm. if you start hanging out with positive people instead of negative people surprisingly you not surprisingly you start to get more positive right because you're putting your attention more on positive stuff because that's what you're surrounded by all of a sudden yeah. Yeah. You know, all the sort of the basics of self-help if you think about this attention thing at all they all make sense so what we've learned is that um you know, you've spent your entire life putting your attention into this habit of this version one of you. 
this type one human, this version one human of you. And that's what society has reinforced. That's what, you know, your genetics have reinforced. Like, yeah. you know, there's no surprise about it. And there's nothing that's even really bad about it, um, except that it's led you to where you are right now. And so now you've got this version one of yourself and it's got that fundamental discontent problem. It's got that sort of core problem of the human condition. And so what you need to do is start is, is get to a point where you can have an experience that's in the direction, if it's not full on version two, it's at least in the direction of version two, and you just start putting your attention on that. And that's what these methods are for. I don't care if it's a prayer thing, or if it's a meditation thing, or if it's a philosophy thing, or some cognitive hack thing. I could care less what it is. Hmm. Uh, there's, a, there's a goofy one out there that, you know, called Headless Way. And you can, it's free to learn. You can go look it up right now, headlessway.org. Headless Way has made a huge impact on so many people helping them to get to this place. And it sounds ridiculous. It's like, wait a minute, you're telling me I just point to my own face? Like, that's one of their core things. You point to your own face. It's like at the heart of the whole method, right? It sounds ridiculous. How can that ever work? But I'll tell you what, when we were doing our research and we had like, we were sitting down with people and I was saying, hey, you know, it was years ago, 12, you know, whatever years ago, um, I was saying, hey, you know, what is it that worked for you? person would say oh well i practiced you know this form of esoteric tibetan buddhism for 35 years and whatever else and i'm like oh great well is that the thing that got you there and it was well, no it wasn't that well, what it was it it was a oh, headless way <laughs> you know i mean the they were so proud of the fact that they devoted themselves to some rigorous spiritual practice forever right that it hadn't gotten them there and then there's this goofy thing on the internet of them pointing at their own face that wound up helping them produce the transition. I heard that again and again and again. It's an incredible <laughs> method, an incredibly effective method, up. right? So hmm. what you want is something that gets you that glimpse. And then when you're having that experience, you just let your attention naturally settle into that experience. You just let yourself relax into, kind of fall into, I say sink into that experience. And the more you do that, the more rewi you're rewiring your brain. And your brain wants you to have a better experience. It wants to have a better experience of itself. And so this thing is so much better than everything else about your life, right? That even though you only might get a few glimpses here and there every day or two days or whatever it is, by starting to really train the brain, okay, hey, brain, we don't want the old version of ourselves. This is what we want. I'm taking time to put attention on this experience. We want to go more in this direction. Can you figure that out? Can you work on that? It will. And it'll pull you in that direction. It'll eventually lock it in persistently. Uh, and all of the old version one, you brain, um, you know, brain tracks, brain connections, network connections yeah. and stuff, they'll, they'll increasingly atrophy. Hmm. Uh, so that's really the secret and I don't know why you know more people haven't discovered that and shouted it from the rooftops or whatever but that's the key it's not about can you stay focused on a candle for 97 years or something right it's can you focus on a candle will the focusing on the candle give you a state like this that you can then sink into forget about the candle sink into the state um, I can't tell you how many how many people who've done practices for decades, you know, have heard me say this and came to me and were like, you know, it took me decades to realize that. Uh, if I if somebody would have just told me that in my first week of meditation, it would have saved me thirty years. Sam, um, what what practice do you have? What do you do? You know, I don't really have too much of a practice anymore. I'm pretty deep in fundamental well-being at this point, um, and so it's just is kind of self-perpetuating. I would say I if my I have a practice around 
uh, the developmental psychology aspects of fundamental well-being at this point, you know, paying attention to how it's unfolding, paying attention to how psychological deconditioning is happening, really trying to um, play a part to make sure that it shapes itself in a way that optimally integrates with the world rather than wanting to go into a sense of isolation hmm. or something like that. Uh, of course, you know, things sometimes come up uh, and I will go to some, you know, tool belt. Um, yeah. the, interestingly, Headless Way transitioned me to what people would think of as non-duality. Uh, so I've, uh, I've had a personal experience with the effectiveness of Headless Way. Um, the meditation method that is that works the best for me and has for the number of years anyway, not forever, but at least starting a couple of years ago, um, is really just watching your breath. Uh, I yeah. think watching your breath is very undervalued. Um, there's mm. a lot of people that I know that go very far into fundamental well-being and like that's the thing. Is it? Yeah. Um, so even though it's what you learn in yoga class 101, right? Then there's a tendency to discount that as, oh, there's got to be something more secret or better than that. But lots of times it's these simple hacks that are all you need. Yeah. I like it, mate. Um, Jeffrey, thanks for coming on. Where can people best go out to find more about your work? I know you've got a website, uh, drjeffreymartin.com, and you've got programs, research books there. You've also mentioned uh, 11myths.com. Obviously, the headless way. I'll stick the link in the show notes for that. Is there anything else that people can do? Yeah. Explorerscourse.com for finders. You can find uh, our research center at uh, nonsymbolic.org. All one word, nonsymbolic.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, if somebody wants to um, participate in uh, the six-week program and get on that track, uh, there's a we've made it. Um, that one, is, we're finally starting to name stuff better for the public. And that one's called 45 days to awakening.com. <laughs> yeah so you know, people used to make fun of our persistent non-symbolic experience labels and so we've gotten better at communicating with people that don't write journal article i like it mate thanks for coming on thanks for sharing appreciate it fascinating stuff yeah thanks this was great all right jeffrey guys check it out thehiddenwide.com all the links will be in the show notes there for this episode 955 until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there. And also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcast. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there, breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose. And in doing so, you will discover your hidden why. This is The Hidden Why. My name is Lee Martinuzzi. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon.